0: The honor of connecting with Dr. Joseph Yee, who is a board certified addiction psychiatrist who specializes in holistic psychiatry and detoxification. He encompasses very much a lifestyle medicine approach to mental and behavioral health. He came on my radar after listening to a podcast that he was on with Sean Stevenson, the Model Health Show. And I knew I absolutely positively wanted to bring his brilliance and curiosity to everyday wellness. Today, we spoke at great length about the impact of the pandemic on not only screen time for children, but also addiction behaviors. We spoke about the role of fentanyl and drug overdose fatalities, why marijuana is not benign, the lack of education for traditional allopathic trained physicians, nurses and nurse practitioners with regard to lifestyle as medicine the impact of psychedelics, such as ketamine therapy, how alcohol and nicotine are socially acceptable addictions, the role of low vibrational frequencies and spirituality. And lastly, supplements that can be beneficial for improving our mental and emotional health. I know you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. I will definitely be bringing Dr. Ye back for more discussions. Dr. Yi, I've been so excited to interview you for a variety of different reasons. And as I was talking about before we started recording, I discovered you on Sean Stevenson's podcast. But then I went down this rabbit hole, and then I was like, "I love everything that he's saying because he's challenging us against the prevailing dogmatic principles and encouraging people to really think." And that's the concept of critical thinking. I think in our kind of modern day existence is. I mean, we just get so rigidly dogmatic. We just put our blinders on and that's all we consider. And we don't think about the fact that maybe what we learned 25 years ago is outdated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you even look at some of psychiatric medications, we haven't really done much different since the 1950s. A lot of the tranquilizers to numb people up are still the same. Uh, they're still around and different variations of those kind of meds and the antidepressants, all the new ones that the drug reps are coming to me with. There's some little tweak of a molecule of the old, and now they have this new cool funky name, and that's supposed to be that much better than the Prozac from you know decades ago. So yeah, it hasn't really changed much.
0: Well, and it's interesting because I trained in the inner city of Baltimore and whether I realized it at the time or not, I was given this incredible opportunity to be exposed to social issues, emotional, mental health issues from one extreme to the next, from every socioeconomic status that you can imagine. Mm. And for me, one thing that really stood out as someone who'd grown up in the suburbs was how Little we understand. I say we like collectively as a country about the net impact of lifestyle. And in many ways, you know, the patients that I saw there, they were in a a lifetime of, you know, whether it was welfare or, you know, they grew up in abject poverty and people assuming that because they were perhaps maybe getting SNAP or food stamps or WIC, that somehow that was going to turn things around for them and, and helping so many of the people that I work with really understand that there were so many social issues that impacted these patients. How can you expect them to be in a position where they're able to take better care of themselves when they're dealing with at a baseline, either abject poverty, drug abuse, maybe their drug addicted parents, there was a patient that I took care of and I remember being surprised the mom would come in and she was always well dressed, she had her nails done, her hair done and the child would tell me there was no food in the house yeah or the way that they dealt with heat was to open up the oven door mm-hmm. and that's how they had heat during the the winter and, and it was still you know cold in Baltimore but you know for me, those social issues that impact mental health are quite significant.
1: Absolutely and just to comment on that, you know I trained in Camden, New Jersey, which is pretty hardcore down there. I don't know if people know about this, but it's, it's uh, could be a little bit more dangerous than Detroit and some parts of LA nowadays. And um, I trained there, and the people who would get the food stamps, you know, they have to make a choice: Do I get food? Do I pay rent with? Do I sell this and pay rents, or do I buy drugs to not withdraw? from the heroin or the crack cocaine. And usually the pain wins out. You know, people will do almost anything to avoid pain. So yeah. it's like, why eat and gain some pleasure out of that? Or do I avoid the pain and withdrawal? So oftentimes they would blow their money on the drugs and they would come to the psych hospital, a Cooper University Hospital. And then they would say that they were suicidal. And then like, I would have to admit them. And was just, this, this, uh, yeah, it was an endless uh, loop of this chaotic uh, cycle there. So I hear you.
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting because, you know, I'm the first person to admit that having lived in the suburbs and then training in Baltimore and Baltimore and Camden have, share a lot in common on many levels. And at the time in the 1990s, it was the, you know, highest teen pregnancy rate. I mean, at that time, it was the heroin addiction. It was the height of the AIDS crisis. And I remember my patients would leave the AIDS floor at Hopkins and they would go, we would try to figure out where they went with their central line. And for anyone that's listening, this is a ability for us to give IV medications right into their central line. And they would leave, they would just pick up and they would go downstairs and they would go outside, they would shoot up and come back upstairs. And it was almost if more often than not, the residents would say, we just don't understand. And I'm like, none of us can understand. We haven't had to deal with the kinds of pressures and issues that so many of these patients have. But I would love to kind of talk about what seems to be, you know, I have a an 18-year-old who'll be going off to college next year. I have another teenager. And we've had to start having some challenging conversations, talking to them about what appears to be this prolific explosion in opiate addiction. Obviously, you see this front and center, but using illicit drugs, prescription drugs, having these conversations. And fentanyl is a drug that we used to use in the emergency room uh, quite often, but now it's being used at a rate and a frequency that we now have, I think it was over a hundred thousand drug overdose fatalities in 2021, which 70 to 80% of which were fentanyl. And I just found that staggering. And so obviously you're involved in, you know, helping people detox and deal with addictions. And so as a parent, What are some of the concerns and fears that you worry about right now about some of the biggest threats to our children? I mean, these synthetic opiates to me are really scary and largely because kids assume if it's a pill, then it's safe. Oh, if I can get a pill, it's safe. And I'm the more that I'm reading, the more concern that I get and the more I talk to friends of mine who have children in college, it's just unbelievable the concerns that we have. When I used to think about Fent just in you know, giving people analgesics prior to sending them off to surgery or when they've been come in with a trauma and now there's more access, they're less expensive. It's my understanding that a lot of it's coming through China and Mexico. So there's greater accessibility and then a lot of people unknowingly are using drugs that are combined with fentanyl and other things that are leading to a lot of accidental overdoses.
1: Yeah. So allow me to answer that question by leading up to the fentanyl situation. So here's a, let's get to the core root of what I think is happening. I mean, we had this opiate crisis way before too, but after the pandemic, I think the substance abuse and addiction situation got a lot worse overall. So allow me to explain what happened from my perspective, there's a saying that the opposite of addiction is connection. And what happened during the initial phases of the pandemic, where we had the lockdowns, and so many of us were disconnected. So the kids weren't allowed to go to school, they were homeschooled, or doing the online schooling. And more and more people, because they were disconnected, were now more addicted to their mobile devices. I'm fully guilty of this. The people listening to this are too. We were checking our social media to find out what the heck is going on. I mean, you were doing that too. We we wanted information. The kids were more on social media to check that out, but also to connect with their friends. And then they there was like a wave of these like TikTok influencers, you know, making their dance videos, trying to distract and make people laugh. And so there were a lot of those videos. A lot of the kid the boys were playing video games. So the greater screen time There's a direct correlation with screen time and increased depression, anxiety, poor focus, mental fatigue, burnouts, ADHD, so on. So what happened was before the pandemic, the average screen time for a teenager was around seven hours or so, which is a decent amount considering the waking time of the day. But after the pandemic, the most recently, March of this year, according to the American Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Organizations, nine hours per day on average for teenagers. So it went up about two hours. So I think the increased screen time has allowed for massive dopamine dumping where they're getting stimulated for not doing the work. Your brain will release dopamine to reward you for good behavior. If you're going to go work out, you read a book, you meditate, you eat healthy foods, sure, you get a dopamine rush. But now we're getting free dopamine fixes, dopamine dumping. And then when you don't scare up the screen anymore, and you're looking at the outside world, the regular world is mundane and boring. So we develop a tolerance to pleasure. And I think that is allowing people to seek other things more. And now we, of course, know that marijuana is a huge thing. It's recreational in God knows how many states now. And it's not, weed isn't what weed used to be. And we'll get into that in a moment. And then so with that comes experimentation with other things and it escalates into the crack cocaine, the fentanyl and so on. We don't really see too many opioids anymore. Only the rich folks still have access to buy oxycodone and so on. But the regular folks, they're getting like little bits of fentanyl mixed in with other chemicals that we could talk about in a moment. So that's my concern is that technology has been like a gateway for this addiction fuel to go rapid across across the world, Actually.
0: It's really interesting because I think back to when I opened up a Facebook account, which you know, this is when my kids were little, I mean, little, 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 and then thinking about the advent of smartphones. And I'm so grateful that my kids were born before a smartphone ever came out because I wasn't constantly on my phone taking photos of them. I was very present, Yeah. but I know that when I talk to people in the health and wellness space and how they feel like their phones, even as adults, they feel like they have to put their phone away. They have to you know, give themselves an electronic detox. They're like, I'm not going to be on my phone for 24 hours. Yeah. And I think it really speaks to the fact that these devices, although there is some practicality to them, they're designed to keep us interacting with them all the time you know it's whether it's the dopamine hit that you take you know the validation of you know you go to a restaurant now and i can't tell you even with my family and i mean we're not perfect but you know i'll tell my kids put your phones away at dinner you put your phones away but how many people go out to dinner and i see i just watch people couples families and everyone's looking at advice instead of interacting with one another so is it any surprise during the the course of the pandemic when So many people were scared and frightened and had no idea they were ambivalent about what would happen next, that that would actually fuel this connection to technology, which then lends itself to other behaviors that can be opportunistic and also unhealthy. And it's actually an
1: unfair battle for you, me, and the people listening to just tell our kids and ourselves like, oh, let's just put our phones away because we're actually competing against these dudes, these psychologists that are getting paid millions and millions to manipulate the situation to make things more addictive and increase screen time. So that they are professionals in this, they study this. Right. But I think instead of saying, let's not go towards that drug, it's almost like we have an imprint in our minds of like, Hey, if we want a quick little dopamine fix, we could look at the phone. If we want to feel a little better, we can have a glass of wine. So instead of like telling people, let's stop doing this, I think it's better to, you know, if we have a graffiti of the phone in our mental minds We need to replace it with a new portrait of some sort. And so I highly recommend that you and everyone listening to this, try this out, buy a chess set and play chess, you know, get it like a mini set with your family while you guys are waiting for your food. I'm telling you, it is like, you guys will get into it. Initially, there's going to be some resistance. They're going to say, what is this? (laughs) But once you start playing a little bit of chess or like you could get those cards like where it's like the family game and you take Mm -hmm. turns asking the family questions, then... Dad, you get some really Kodak, you know, beautiful moments from those kind of questions. So I think it's better to replace it with something than to say, put it away.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think for so many of us, you know, during the pandemic, what did my kids start doing again? Legos, puzzles, you know, games that we could do as a family because we were just trying to break up the routine of being home all day long, doing school for home, working from home. Now, you alluded and kind of touched on a drug that in many parts of the United States is now legalized. And I think marijuana, as you mentioned, is not as benign as people you know, would like to make it out to be. And even understanding that marijuana in and of itself is more potent. It's in many instances, it's, there are other things that it's utilized with. I know vaping is a hot topic right now. And I know that that potentiates the addictive qualities of what people are doing let's kind of start the conversation around marijuana because i know in developing brains it in yeah. particular they're very very susceptible to the net impact of marijuana.
1: absolutely. so the bob marley weed from back in the 70s was usually <laughs> about 4% in thc concentration. nowadays it's about 15 to 20% in thc concentration per bud, okay? But forget that. Now, thanks to technology with the rise of these dab pens and these highly concentrated forms, the THC levels in these juices could be up to 90% plus. And I'm telling you, for the people watching this, it's a big deal because I was a big-time marijuana advocate for a long, long time. I was a musician before I became a doctor. I failed as a musician, so medical school is my backup choice, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's for people who follow my social media, like, you know, how do you edit these videos? Like, I learned from... My music days. But um, yeah, the weed now is not the weed from before. And I'm seeing more than ever, Cynthia, these cases of psychoses and manic episodes from people who are, are somewhat genetically susceptible, because I'm not saying everyone, there are plenty of people who can smoke a lot of weed and not have these episodes, but I'm seeing more than ever, at least like five or six cases a year of these teenagers that are smoking too much and then something gets triggered in their minds and they have these manic psychotic episodes where they're staying up, waking up in the middle of the night taking showers, scrubbing their hands, or their arms to the point of bleeding because they believe that there's a bug inside. And then what happens? We stop the weed, psychosis goes away. So, you know, it's as simple as that. And I always thought that I would be a long, forever advocate of marijuana for all the medicinal and recreational benefits. But my stance has changed big time since all these mutant genetically modified marijuana strains has come out. And that's very concerning for me as a parent, like you said, because for the development minds. There's, we call it a motivational syndrome. That's a fancy word of saying it takes, it cuts off a person's vision with their motivation. So, with their behavior. So, if I have a vision to become a doctor or an engineer someday or a podcast host like you someday, I'm very motivated and my behavior would be to like work hard and make the right connections and study and all this stuff. Well, if you're smoking too much marijuana, it cuts off that connection. So, it disconnects the vision with the motivation.
0: One of the most common concerns I see in perimenopause and menopause is hair loss, hair breakage, hair shedding. And knowing that over 80 million Americans are impacted by this is both reassuring, but it's wonderful to know that there are products available that can help with these symptoms. Divi is good for those with hair shedding or thinning due to stress in perimenopause or menopause. They can be helpful for addressing dry scalp and have you wanted to take control of your hair health but aren't sure where to start. This is where a Divi can be hugely impactful. I love their scalp serum and we know that the scalp serum improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes our hair follicles and removes product and oil buildup. There are some key ingredients. Ingredients, including tea tree oil, which works to reduce and prevent excess oil buildup on the scalp, amino acids that help to strengthen hair, fight frizz, which is my greatest concern, and reduce breakage and copper tripeptide one, which is a small protein composed of the three amino acids to facilitate a clean and hydrated scalp, as well as hyaluronic acid, which is nourishing and hydrating to our scalps. As I mentioned, Divi is not just for those experiencing hair loss, I found it to be hugely helpful for scalp health and all of Divi's products, including their shampoos and conditioners, Come together to create a full daily solution that helps women nourish their hair and get to the root of scalp health. Do you want to take back control of your hair and scalp health and do it with clean science backed ingredients? Go to DiviOfficial.com slash Cynthia or enter Cynthia at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's D-I-V-I official.com Cynthia for 20% off your first order. As I mentioned, my favorite product is the scalp serum. And now that we're in the deep throes of winter weather, it is so wonderfully nourishing and moisturizing. At some point, we've all been sold a big slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. And it makes sense. And so my poor children have heard this from as long as they've been alive, you know, your prefrontal cortex is not fully formed until you're in your mid twenties. And so I remind them that they sometimes cannot win the moment. They can't think about the consequences of their actions. Is that part of this amotivational syndrome? Is it the impact on the prefrontal cortex or is this just in general terms, what can happen? You hit the nail on
1: the head, but okay. specifically it is a dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that connects your vision with your behavior. And that line gets severed with chronic marijuana use. And especially with the concentration these days, oh my goodness. I started using uh, THC in my early 20s. And by that point, your brain's like mostly developed, right? But nowadays, these middle schoolers have the vape pens and the vape pens don't smell so they could smoke it in the bathrooms. And I hear this because I have teenage clients. They tell me about these kinds of things. So that's honestly a lot more scary to me as a parent than my kids messing with fentanyl. Interesting. and marijuana, you know, a lot of there's controversy over like people saying, oh, this is a gateway drug to fentanyl and all these other things. Well, I don't know about that because I know plenty of people who use marijuana and only stick with marijuana. But every single human being that I've ever met who's ever tried heroin or opiates or <laughs> fentanyl or so on, they've all smoked marijuana before. So I don't know what that says, but there is some sort of correlation there.
0: Yeah, well, and and you certainly, this is your area of expertise and helping people through this process. Now, I thought many years ago, I had read that there are people that have some genetic susceptibilities that smoking marijuana will make them psychotic or make them paranoid. And has that been your experience? You mentioned you get five or six patients a year that go through this psychosis, but I know from personal experience, and I can count on one hand how many times I smoked marijuana when I was not a teenager, college age, my mom might listen to this podcast Every time I ever smoked marijuana, it made me very paranoid. And when I say very paranoid to the point where my friends will still laugh about this, they're like, you are the person that never, ever, ever could have been someone that got addicted to smoking marijuana because you were acutely paranoid. And I remember they used to put me in a corner and I was like, this must just be whatever my genetics are. But it's also, I'm a tremendous rule follower that probably helped as well. But I'm curious if you see, have you seen individuals that, that use marijuana as an example, and one or two times, and they have that degree of paranoia, which seems out of proportion to other individuals who can use it without that at all.
1: I don't think I've met that person who used it one or two times, but with consistent use at some point, something happens, mm-hmm. and then they have this manic spike. And just last year, I had three clients who I was very close to, actually, who all had the same common denominator where they were using marijuana. And it was more of like the vape pens, the mm-hmm. concentrated forms. I didn't see too much of that from the buds, as much as this new technologically advanced, highly concentrated, potentiated forms. And they all had these manic episodes. And it was very simple where, you know, I convinced them that, and to be honest, I actually didn't believe that study. When they said like marijuana calls psychosis, I'm like, oh, that's bull. That's like their way of trying to take that marijuana and stuff. And then when I started seeing it in my practice, uh, that's when I started looking into it. And yes, there are certain people who are genetically predispositioned to have these kind of manic flares or these psychotic episodes. But three of them, like it was a relatively quick fix, just letting go of the weed. And then they're like, oh my God, you are a genius. I'm like, no, this is just <laughs> a very simple. Just remove the toxins. It wasn't anything crazy. I did give, I had to give these people some medication so that they could sleep, you know, because when they're having a manic episode, they have way too much energy. So I had to give them some sort of an anti-psychotic mood stabilizer. I do believe that psych meds can be helpful for some people sometimes. I just don't like the way that psychiatrists go about it with like medicating everybody for every, you know, situation there is. But I did have to do that for a little bit and then afterwards wean them off, no weed and then that's good. And then people would actually challenge that and they would test it again And then they would have another, you know, psychotic episode. And then look, Johnny, you get it now, right? So uh.
0: (laughs) A plus B equals C. And let me be clear. I never had a psychotic episode, but I do recall that paranoia was enough to reinforce never doing it again. Now, I want to kind of go back to fentanyl because in our conversations, you had mentioned there's an animal tranquilizer, There are drugs that are being mixed with fentanyl that are kind of potentiating the impact of fentanyl and it. And I just, I think I'm on a fentanyl curiosity focus at this point, but xylazine, am I pronouncing that properly?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's crazy, but people, Chris Rock, the comedian said, take all the drugs, illegal drugs away. And people will figure out new ways to get effed up, if in glue or whatever it is. And xylazine is a different form of a medication called Clonidine. I don't know yeah. if you ever heard of Clonidine. Yeah. I'm actually a huge fan of that medication. It's a great medication for people with like anxiety, uh, restlessness, if they can't sleep too well, Clonidine can help. It's actually a blood pressure medication, mm-hmm. but I use it for all the behavioral health benefits with like sleep, anxiety, also with like opioid withdrawal. Clonidine is like amazing for that. It actually helps with that, like that anxiety and restlessness that comes with it. So xylazine is a hardcore form of clonidine. It's an alpha-1 agonist. It suppresses the release of norepinephrine, which is a neurotransmitter that's kind of like involved in that flight mode where it Mm -hmm. it allows you to feel more alert and focused. So xylazine and clonidine suppresses the release of norepinephrine. But xylazine is like a horse tranquilizer. It's hardcore much more powerful than Clonidine. So somehow someone figured out that if you mix some xylazine with a little bit of fentanyl, then it drastically has a synergistic potentiated effect. And the people are shooting this up and they're having like necrosing ulcers throughout their body from the lack of oxygen going to certain areas. This thing is so addicting right now. I have a patient who is pretty wealthy, but their son is in a hotel right now as we speak with his girlfriend because the family kicked him out. And he, him and his girlfriend cannot stop using xylosine. And they're essentially, this is a little graphic, but they're lying on the bed right now, shooting up xylosine, barely eating. They can't even, they're so weak right now. They can't even go to the bathroom. They're pooping in a bowl next to their bed. This is how sick things have gotten for these people. They can't go to the bathroom to take a shower, go to the toilets. This is what's happening. But apparently whatever they're feeling It feels good enough where they don't feel like they need to move or eat anything. So, this is a a terrible thing that's happening in the Philadelphia area. Uh, I don't know if you've seen videos of like these people that look like zombies just walking around. That's a xylazine fentanyl gas.
0: It's interesting. So, background as an NP, I spent 16 years in cardiology. So, clonidine was one of these drugs we could never get our patients off of. If they got put on clonidine to control their blood pressure, the joke was we could never get them off. And so understanding that this is a derivative of that, that magnified so substantially. And so I think these kinds of conversations are helpful to at build awareness. One of the things that has kind of come up in conversations with friends of mine who are ER physicians or NPs or docs is Narcan and how you know years ago in Baltimore if the uh, EMS personnel saw someone that that was unconscious they gave Narcan before they did anything else and several of these friends of mine have actually talked about sending their kids to college with Narcan because it's become such a big problem and I don't know this is probably controversial to ask you this but it was like one of those things that came up in a social conversation that friends of mine who were kind of that world They're so concerned about opiate overdoses, fentanyl in particular, that they're kind of sending their kids to college with Narcan and and Narcan is very accessible on college campuses for this reason.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I know it's crazy because substance abuse does not discriminate. And I would say on average, about three of my clients die from a opioid overdose per year. Probably like maybe one via suicide or like two- is some sort of a drug overdose and usually fentanyl. And the last few people who died, like they came from like affluent communities and families. You know, you would think that it's like the the guys in certain parts of Philadelphia or Baltimore and so on. But no, no, these are like one of the, my clients was a, a judge, son of a judge. You know, these people who own massive companies and their son get caught up with the wrong people. So no. yeah, it happens. So yeah, I would actually support taking something like that to college just in case.
0: Yeah, my both my boys this past summer took programs at a university in North Carolina and, and I had to have this whole conversation and they're like, we don't do any of those things. I said, but you're going to be exposed whether it's when you're there or when you go off to college or in high school, it will happen. Those conversations need to be had. And I generally end up being that parent that everyone kind of like box, like my kid would never do that. And I just said, I've seen so much and certainly you're in the thick of things. But let's kind of pivot and talk a little bit about why is it that healthcare professionals are given such little guidance and information about lifestyle as medicine? I know that you've been very outspoken about this, that you know, you've stood up at some of these Conferences, medical conferences that you've attended and really challenged people to say, has anyone done a study looking at physical activity and its impact on mental health? And everyone looked around the room like, what are you talking about?
1: Well, yeah, I think you're referring to the story I told about the president of the American Psychiatric Association at the annual meeting. And then the guy came out, gave a speech. He said there are gonna be there's we have all this funding for all this new studies on gabapentin and this medication, that drug. And I just rose my hand and said, Hey, are there any studies on the link between nutrition and mental health and addictions? And he just like paused and he kind of like looked around the room and he said, uh, well, if you not currently, but if you want to send me some articles suggesting that there is a link, we'd be happy to look into that. (laughs) That's basically him saying, no, I don't know. And I don't know. I think it was at that moment that I just realized like, man, these guys are just like, it's not that hard, right? It's not really not that hard to just think about the basics of what your body is made up of. Your body is made up of organs. Organs are made up of tissues. Tissues are made up of cells. Your cells do like a million biochemical processes per second. And it runs on nutrients, vitamins, minerals, water, oxygen. And everyone listen to this. I imagine you have a pretty intelligent audience. I mean, you don't even have to be that intelligent to know that you you are what you eat and how you think and how you behave. So, Is it that much of a stretch to believe that if you put healthy fats and healthy proteins and amino acids and certain vitamins and minerals and nutrients and good water, that you will actually function better as a human being? And that could lead to better mental and physical, spiritual health. Like, is that that far of a stretch to believe that? But you're absolutely right. And the people need to know this. The less than 5% of American medical schools have any sort of nutrition in their curriculum. And the little bit of nutritional studies that we had in my medical school, they taught us to memorize the structure of triglyceride fat molecules, cholesterol molecules, what LDL looks like versus HDL. Like, why do I need to do any of the audience here care if I draw a picture of what HDL looks like versus LDL? Or should I say, (laughs) hey, man, you might want to eat these kind of fats because these are great for your brain health. They didn't teach us that. So I don't know what kind of training you had, but my training was pretty much- garbage when it came to nutrition and wellness.
0: Yeah, it was literally the food guide pyramid, and then maybe a transition to my plate. And I can tell you in cardiology, we told everyone to fear fats, fear eating animal-based protein. I cringe. I always say now I know better, so I do better. But when I look back to when I was a baby nurse practitioner, I mean, a lot of what came out of my mouth it was what we were taught, but it certainly isn't accurate at all. We're wondering why we have escalating rates of metabolic disease and diabetes. And I think the most recent statistic I read is that 60 to 70% of Americans consume hyperprocessed foods, 60 to 70%. I mean, just understanding what those foods do in the gut microbiome, how they impact healthy neurotransmitters. I mean, people don't stand a chance. Is it any wonder? And then you you know, kind of sprinkle in you know, the synthetic oral contraceptives that young women are given to fix their, you know, menstrual cycles from a very early age. And is it any wonder all these young women are on antidepressants? I have really lovely young women that were babysitters for my kids when they were younger. And they would, over time, they became, we all became very close and they would share, you know, every single one of them was on. And these are like healthy, well-adjusted people. And they would say, To me, just unknowing, like, oh, I was put on oral contraceptives to fix my skin or because my cycles were wonky. And then, like, two years later, then I'm on an antidepressant, then I'm on an anti anxiety agent. You know, is there any connection? And I remember the first time that I was asked this, I thought to myself, we have whole generations of women that are put on oral contraceptives. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent yeah. on oral contraceptives. And we're really not thinking about what's the net impact of suppression of all their sex hormones so that they don't get pregnant. I mean, I understand that's for many people, that's the desired end result, but at what expense? And these hyper foods, how it's impacting healthy neurotransmitter production- what's the net impact. And so I think it's so common now, like even women, like I'm a middle aged woman, how many patients have come to me and, you know, they can't sleep. They have terrible anxiety, terrible depression. And what they really need is progesterone. But what they typically get prescribed is something to help them sleep, which I know, you know, that's kind of allopathic medicine. It's like, let's we're trying to find a solution to a problem. And I'm not being critical. I'm just saying that when these things kind of come up, it just really makes me think how disconnected we are as healthcare professionals in many instances to how lifestyle really net impacts our mental and emotional health.
1: Absolutely. And during my third year of medical school, during my OBGYN rotation. The residents and the attendings were basically heavily endorsing that we should be prescribing oral contraceptives to all girls because it could drastically reduce the incidence of ovarian cancer, if I remember correctly, as long as you're not smoking. It's a great thing. It's super safe and it's great. Like I'm the guy that got a D minus in ob so I'm not the expert <laughs> in gynecology, but just naturally as a human being, if you have the ability to think and reason if you're messing with your hormones, mm-hmm. that's a big deal.
0: Mm-hmm. And I've
1: spoken to other holistic gynecologists since, and they're saying, no, don't get on this kind of stuff. You know, So it could totally affect your mental health, anxiety levels, and so on. So uh, yeah, I've been on a mission to try to encourage my female clients to maybe get off of these kinds of things, but they don't want to, they're scared. They're scared. So that's that. And going back to something else you said about you know, nutrition and the Western allopathic system, you know, I mean, this in a very professional way, but I think you're a lovely lady. You look great. I think I look pretty good too. And we're both (laughs) like graduates of the Western system, but you notice that a lot of the Western graduates don't look very healthy. Mm -hmm. They're usually overweight. I actually believe that, you know, instead of these continuing medical education credits of like us taking these quizzes or however many you need to take, we should do a fitness test. If yes. you're gonna be a doctor or a healthcare professional of any sort, like you should be healthy enough to advise other people on the health. Test that. Do 10 push ups. Be able to run a 10 minute mile. Like that's not that hard to do. Right. So that's my um rant on that. But no, there's so many people who are super unhealthy. And I look at them like, wow, like I can't believe that you actually have a running business right now. Yeah. People actually go to you for yeah. medical advice. It's just bizarre.
0: Well, imagine one of the first hospitals I worked at as an NP, it was a like leading cardiology center for Baltimore. And I remember sitting at lunch one day and I looked outside and one of the cardiovascular surgeons was smoking in between cases. And I thought to myself, you know, if you're telling your patients they need to stop smoking, but you yourself are continuing to smoke or you yourself are not doing all the things that you're encouraging your patients to do, get more rest Eat more vegetables, whatever it is. More water, you know. Drink less alcohol. We really do need to be the example because maybe it isn't as challenging in your twenties and thirties, but I can assure everyone listening: the older you get, the more challenging it gets to remain as healthy as you once were, and so it, it becomes even more fine-tuning. You know what yeah. I got away with fifteen years ago, I can't get away with now, and I'm okay with that. I'm in a good place. Yeah, I would love to kind of talk about alcohol, because I think in many ways, this is one of these substances that is socially acceptable, but I can't tell you how many people I've encountered in particular over the last 10 to 15 years that are fully functioning alcoholics. They may not realize it, but I do think that alcohol can be one of these drugs, substances that in many ways is so socially acceptable that people may not, first of all, realize that they have a problem, but also because it's so accepted socially, people don't even blink an eye if someone is inebriated at a party. And it's like, every time you see this person, they're inebriated, or every time you see them, they're fall down drunk. I'm curious what your thoughts are from your perspective.
1: Yeah, I believe that as it stands now, you know, drugs like fentanyl and sufentanyl and Zalazine, these things are maybe the most deadliest. But as far as the most addicting, where people lose control over themselves to sustain a certain habit, I would say nicotine and alcohol are by far the two most addictive substances we're facing right now. And you're absolutely right, because it's so socially acceptable. It's really hard for the guys who had a drinking issue, and then they went through rehab, the detox and everything. And then now they come back home, and the families are like, you're expected to be normal now. Now you got to go take out the trash. You got to start doing this. You got to be a dad. (laughs) And it's like, Mm -hmm. yo, man, like my brain has been on alcohol for the past 19 years. I'm still trying to adjust and trying to figure this life thing out. And now people are just expecting your brain to just, oh, you've been to rehab and detox for a month. So now you should be back to baseline. I don't think that's fair. I think people have to be more understanding and compassionate (laughs) towards these people that are in recovery because the detox is one thing, but the recovery process, especially in the beginning, can be really, really difficult. So that's something that uh, a lot of people go through in my practice. And I would say that this happens all the time too. A lot of people, they stop drinking for a couple months or so. And then they said, hey, you know what? I believe that I could start drinking responsibly again. In my 18 plus years of doing addiction medicine, I would say maybe one person has been able to prove to herself and me that she can do that in a socially acceptable manner every other person has failed. Now, we, of course, know that people don't like being told what to do. So when I say, hey, man, listen, 18 plus years, there's only one person that was able to prove me wrong on this. They're like, well, I'm going to be the second one. They all fail, end up going to a hospital, rehab, all this stuff again. So yeah, it's really, really addicting. If I could come clean on something, I recently let go of the nicotine vape pen. I believed That's that would be a less dangerous, safer form than the tobacco that I was smoking for for many years. And when I did the nicotine vape pen, I came to realize shortly afterwards that that is exponentially more addicting because you're smoking (laughs) that nicotine all the time. It tastes good. You could do it inside. It doesn't smell. So you can kind of get away with it indoors. And then when I finally let go of it, my God, like I actually went to a couple of meetings you know, AA meetings, because I didn't find no nicotine anonymous (laughs) meetings. So I went to AA. (laughs) And it was interesting because during the break, I mean, these people like, hey, my name is Johnny and I've been sober for 50 plus years, but they're all going out afterwards smoking cigarettes. So it's like, damn, you know, just these two, it has the best of many, many good people out there for sure. Yeah.
0: Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeka during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy provide mental clarity and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals and neutralizes lactic acid all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix. That needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com/slash cynthia. That's 10% off your first purchase. That's 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com/slash cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? I'm the adult child of an alcoholic. So I grew up, you know, whatever your normal is, is your normal. But growing up with an alcoholic parent who I view compassionately, I talk about this parent occasionally on podcasts and in a a respectful way, but I can attest to the fact this is someone who had a, a successful job and very professional, but as soon as that person came home until they went to bed. They drank and it's really been sad to kind of watch the trajectory of, of what has gone on. And I actually was reading about your the trajectory of your decision to actually stop using nicotine and, and vaping. And I think I saw you talking about how you started getting really even more physically active, that you were like climbing mountains because now you have, you know, you're looking for a distraction, you know, from that that habit that was formed.
1: Yeah. And maybe this could be a good segue into psychedelics, because I actually, for the first time in a long time, because honestly, Cynthia, I've been getting very burnt out of psychiatry, doing the same thing over and over again. I make my living by helping a lot of my clients come off of psychiatric medications, not just illicit ones, but psychiatric meds. People have been prescribed Zoloft at a certain time in their life. They were very anxious and depressed at the time. Their life situation is better. Now they want to be off of it. They don't know how to. So I do a lot of that. I help people taper off of psych meds, which can be a lot more challenging than the heroin, and other, you know, illegal drugs out there. So that's kind of like how I've done my work. But more recently, I've been getting burnt out of doing the same thing over and over again. So I've been introduced to ketamine by a friend of mine who's a holistic psychiatrist out in Santa Barbara, California. And he said, look, if you're getting burnt out, you got to start looking into ketamine treatment. And I'm like, dude, that's the stuff that I used to snort." Back in Twilo during my (laughs) (laughs) clubbing, raving days, like you're telling me that this is legit. And he's like, oh, dude, like that's, you know, what we're doing now is at a different level than what we used to do when we were partying. So I actually got trained by him. I actually flew out to California, got trained by him in ketamine therapy. And ketamine is a really interesting drug. It's uh, been around since the 70s. It's actually a derivative of PCP, not to freak people out, but it's super safe because it's very short acting. It's an anesthetic. It's a dissociative anesthetic. If a child gets into some crazy motor vehicle accident and needs to be intubated and needs to be sedated, they'll give them ketamine, 300 to 500 milligrams. The dose that we use for these psychedelic antidepressant journeys for ketamine treatment is about a tenth of that 50 milligrams, a fraction of what we give kids during surgery. So it's super safe, short acting. It's different from other analgesics like opioids in that it doesn't suppress your breathing. In fact, when people OD from fentanyl, that's how they die. They stop breathing. Fentanyl doesn't do that and it's very short acting. So you're kind of in and out. But ketamine, I would say from my experience of training in that, I've seen certain things in my subconsciousness because that's one of the things that psychedelics do. They allow you to like get a glimpse of what's underneath there. You know, like you saw that picture of that iceberg. The tip of the iceberg is your consciousness underneath that 95% of your subconsciousness that dictates and governs your behavior. So when I got to see that I saw myself accepting a vape pen from some very evil demonic looking like figure. And uh, I had this awakening like, wow, evil has evolved. You know, you would think that evil is like some dude that's red with a pointy horns and a tail and a black trench coat trying to do evil bad things in the world. But it's evolved into this vape pen and getting me to kill myself by taking this. And it didn't matter how much my family and my doctor friends were like, dude, you're a board certified addiction psychiatrist. You gotta let this shit go. When in one ear out the other. But once I saw that, it had such a meaningful impact on me that I decided that I was never going to bow down to evil again. And yeah, that's what got me to stop. So sometimes people have these psychedelic experiences, whether it's on psilocybin or uh, (laughs) ketamine, you could have these like profound psychedelic insights where it could get you to make like instant changes for the better. That's kind of how I finally was able to stop the vape pen.
0: That's really interesting. And it, for me, my experience with ketamine, when my now 18 year old son was four, he fell and broke his arm pretty badly. And I remember the pediatric ER doctor said, we're going to give him ketamine, but you probably don't want to be here because he's he's going to be a little bit out of it. And I remember that I was there when they gave it and I was like, nope, I'm done. I'm leaving. I'm glad to know that there are drugs that are evolving to a point where they provide so many benefits to patients. So when someone needs to use ketamine, is it something that's ongoing? Is it a one-time thing? I mean, how does that work when you uh, we'll speak in generalities. Do most people need more than one or two exposures to ketamine to get the benefits if it's like addiction or antidepressant therapy? How does that work?
1: Yeah, generally we recommend at our practice about 3 to 6 appointments, ketamine appointments. And it's a two hour appointment. So the first hour is with me and I do the ketamine injection and I'm holding space during the initial phase of the psychedelic experience. And then the second hour is with the therapist. And then during that hour, the the person's more conscious to kind of explore what they've experienced and talk some of their feelings through. And ketamine in a way kind of acts like as a, a truth serum. People are just more open to just sharing like how they really feel about certain things so it's really cool in that way i would say so generally we recommend six treatments for people who are financially struggling we'll say okay do at least three but the way it's supposed to go is the first week second week third week four week weekly and then the next two treatment every other week and that's kind of like the first course and if people want to continue with it i recommend do it maybe once a month i don't believe that you have to suffer from severe depression to have academy experience sometimes it's good for people to have a different perspective on what you know, just maybe step out of their normal routine of consciousness and experience a different perspective. And that's what I think ketamine is really good at allowing people to do. And another thing that's very, very important about ketamine is that you, of course, know about the dopamine reward center. Now, there are some people who experience something called anhedonia, which is a fancy word for lacking pleasure and joy and things that used to give them joy and pleasure, such as like listening to music, going for a car ride, you know, hanging out with their buddies and so on. There are some people who just have no emotions anymore. They just don't feel joy. And the reason being, what we're noticing is that there's something in the brain called the habinula center, habinula. And it's like this pea-sized structure in the midbrain. And it's responsible for holding on to a lot of dark, depressing, disappointing memories. And some people have such childhood traumatic, disappointing memories that this habinular center is so overpowering that it like has a grip on the dopamine reward center that it's near impossible for people to just think positive and feel good about life. So when we did the ketamine treatment, ketamine has this unique ability to block the habinula center and then the dopamine reward center can breathe again. And people like when we see like instant within 30 minutes of people saying, oh, I feel better. Oh my God. Like this is the best I've felt in a long time. That's the grip of the habinula finally letting go and the dopamine center able to breathe again. So I know it's really weird for me, Cynthia, to be advocating chemicals because like I'm a holistic guy. I have a supplement line. So I like to promote naturopathic uh, means. And I always say that if I could do it over again, I would have become a naturopathic doctor. I would never go back to the Western medicine system. But having said that, there are this one of the few cool things that are coming out from Western medicine that I will say has made a huge impact on not only myself, but on my clients as well.
0: Yeah, it's really exciting. And obviously, this is something that I have very little exposure to, but I I have been hearing from colleagues that they themselves or their own patients have had profound changes. Now, you had a recent post on Instagram, which I interacted with That I have the same prevailing feeling, I think one of your children brought something to you. And it was, I don't know if it was a musician, but they had this mask and you know, these kind of demonic properties to a lot of music that you're seeing. And so how do we help our children or our teenagers make sense of imagery or things that they see or music that they hear that really celebrate evil or celebrate things that are not healthy for them. Because again, our children, our teenagers, they're still young people and they're so impressionable, obviously monitoring what your kids are doing. Are doing is certainly important. But, you know, that post, and I encourage my listeners to go check out your Instagram account because it was very, and you can tell that you have this music background because it was really compelling. You are like very drawn into, you know, what your children had brought you when you were talking about this prevailing sense of evil that kind of is targeted towards our youth.
1: I really appreciate you bringing that up and the kind words behind that because. Not too long ago, I brought that up to a group of my wife's friends, really. I mean, my wife has her group of friends and I was invited to the dinner party and I just kind of brought it up and people looked at me like, You really do believe that these artists and entertainers and some of these people in Hollywood are like involved in the occult and stuff and
0: low energy.
1: Yeah. It's not like I want this, like this sounds bizarre to me, you know, but it's not like I want this, but that's what these people are into. So I'm just stating the obvious and more and more normal people are seeing it too. You look at any of these artists like Kid LaRoy, The Weeknd, Doja Cat. I mean, it's just like blatantly in our faces. And Doja Cat recently had like this promotion of her bloody statue in random parts throughout California and different parts of the States. So yeah, it's happening. And my message was that we can't just totally protect our kids from not watching these things. In fact, what happened was my son was watching chess videos and then the thing that was recommended was this like Halloween thing. But this Halloween thing was like super creepy. Even mm-hmm. for me, I was like, what is this video? So for the people, md is my social media account. If you wanna check out the video that's pinned on the top, that's the one, it's called the Spiritual Warfare. But yeah, that's no joke. This is actually happening and it's like the cool thing amongst these kids because they're being influenced by these artists that they look up to. So I actually consulted with a bunch of these like highly respected namaste folks, you know, people (laughs) in the spiritual Mm -hmm. community. And they're saying that this is a spiritual war that's happening. And the more that people are exposed to this kind of nonsense, the lower our vibrations get along with them. And the more we are accepting of this evil demonic ass things because they're trying to normalize this for- some great agenda that we don't need to get into here. So what I did was I, I sat my kids down and I had an honest discussion with them. I said, look, guys, I know this might sound really weird, but some of these artists, in order for them to get really, really big, they have to be a part of a club. And part of the club means that they got to do all this weird demonic stuff. So the next time you see it, can you do me a favor and point it out to me? And then what my daughter and my sons are they're doing is like, oh, dad, look at this. Look at uh, Katy Perry's uh, video here. Like they did this. And it's like, oh, look at that album cover. So now we're able to call it out and it doesn't have that much of a power, subliminal power on us anymore because we recognize and we're aware of it. So I know it's very weird for me to even advise that to parents here. But it's everywhere. So I'm asking you guys to check out the post and do your own research and you'll see it. Once you see it, you cannot unsee all this weird demonic stuff that's happening. And I think we should have a heart to heart with our kids so that they can make the best decision for themselves moving forward. Cause we're not going to be able to police it all the time.
0: No. And I, I think that's important, especially now that I have two teenagers and you know, we have these open, honest discussions. And actually I showed both of them your video and said, Have you guys seen things like this? And One's into country music and the other one was like, is really into rap, but he actually brought up the fact he said, now I'm like more cognizant and aware of it. I was kind of not paying attention to it, but now that you've called attention to it, I'm probably going to be much more conscientious. And for anyone that's listening, I think when we talk about spiritualism, it's, and it's not something I've really you know discussed much on the podcast, but it's certainly something as a parent and as someone who is pretty attuned to what my kids are doing, it's definitely on my radar. And I, I think when we talk about this low vibrational frequency, I mean, I think it, we're really speaking of protecting your energy, protecting the energy of those you love. I'm not a Pollyanna, but I do think we have to be realistic and proactive with our kids and not just kind of you know sign off like, my kid's old enough now, I don't need to worry about it. Yes, you do. Just like my teenagers, even though they're bigger than me and they think they know all, we're still having those conversations. Now, I would love for us to kind of wrap up the conversation today. You kind of mentioned that you have some supplements that for you have been very efficacious with your own patients. I'm curious what they are. Obviously, I'm going to encourage listeners to go check out your content. Got an amazing website. What are some of your favorite supplements that you're utilizing in your work or things that you think most of your patients need?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I've had problems or challenges with psychiatry for a very long time, if I could just share a little something. My third year of medical school was the only time in my existence that I didn't want to exist. Now I wasn't going to kill myself, but I had those thoughts that I didn't want to live anymore. And that's a pretty dark place to be in. And it was during my surgery rotation, some girl that I was in love with dumped me and the way she dumped me was really cheesy too. She ghosted me. You ever have that kind of a dump where they ghosted you? Didn't even have the courtesy to give you a reason why they wanted to break up with you. So that happened. And it was in the midst of my surgery rotation. I had to get up like four o'clock in the morning. I was barely eating, barely sleeping. I was like, just so depressed. And then the program director came up to me and she said, you are so depressing that you are like a black hole. You are making residents (laughs) and attending and medical students depressed around you. And when someone doesn't want to exist and you hear that, that doesn't make you feel very good. Trust me. So then I said, okay, well, do you think maybe I should take a leave of absence like for my mental health? And she said, no, I think you need to see a psychiatrist. She said, I went to see a psychiatrist and, he, and I told him all my problems with the, the girl situation and, you know, surgery and malnutrition, lack of sleep, all this stuff. And you know what he said? He said, I believe you need to take Paxil.
0: <laughs> oh no. <laughs> right.
1: And I said, of all the antidepressants out there, because I was, a, you know, I wanted to be a psychiatrist at that point. So I knew what Paxil was, the antidepressant SSRI medication. I said, why Paxil? And he said, well, because Paxil is a side effect of weight gain. And because you're so malnourished and you're so skinny, this would be good for you. He didn't want to talk to me about nutrition. He didn't want to talk to me about sleep, exercise. He didn't want to talk to me about grief from the loss of a loved one. I mean, so this is the kind of stuff that happens in psychiatry all the time. Mm-hmm. So I've been frustrated with medicine in general. And what happened was I I started looking into these medications, right? So like, let's just say it's Zoloft, Prozac. These are very common antidepressants. They artificially raise the level of serotonin in your system. There's not an ounce or a single molecule of serotonin in Zoloft or Prozac, but with whatever's inside, it artificially slows down the breakdown of it, which helps accumulate the actions of serotonin. So I started thinking, huh, Where does serotonin come from? Well, serotonin comes from tryptophan, an amino acid that can be found in turkey, pumpkin seeds, avocados, bananas, and some of these beans and nuts and health foods. And I realized that most of my clients who are struggling with depression, anxiety, so on, they don't eat very clean. And I don't like to use the word diet. They're not eating smarts wants to eat dumb. So I said, Hey, how about you eat smarter? And they said, Oh yeah, you know what? I will do that. So I list the names of the foods. Like, Hey, you should eat more of like these pumpkin seeds and Turkey and eggs and beans and nuts, avocados, bananas. They don't do it for whatever reason in my practice, maybe it's different with yours, like exercise and diet is like kryptonite to most of these people. So I had this idea like, okay, how can I make this super simple for you to get these essential nutrients in so that your body could produce dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, endorphins, these positive neurotransmitters efficiently? Like how could I get you to comply? And that's how like I came up with the idea of mental wellness supplement company called Beyond Recovery. And our flagship product is something called mental wellness. It's like a multivitamin for the mind, one scoop a day. It has all the ingredients that I recommend for my clients, including the right B complexes, the magnesium, tryptophan, tyrosine, and uh, DLPA, and magnesium, and so on, and other herbs that synergistically work together to help raise your serotonin, dopamine, and endorphin levels. So that's in a nutshell, like how I came up with the idea. And the people who have been, I initially started prescribing these supplements individually, and then they were all complaining that they didn't want to buy eight bottles at once. It was too difficult to carry around. So that's how I came up with the idea of like, why don't I just mix all this stuff together? It's a very simple idea. So that's kind of how the idea was born. And that's what I recommend for every single one of my clients as a mental wellness multivitamin to start the day.
0: I love that. And one thing we really didn't touch on, but something that I was very drawn to when I initially heard your story was your trajectory from parental expectations to getting into medical school. To leaving medical school, to becoming, you know, this whole journey, which. I think in so many ways, maybe at the time, all of those decisions maybe didn't make sense. But now retrospectively, I'm sure it makes sense because it's made you a very unique provider and someone that has all this life experience that you bring to the work that you're doing with your patients. And for that, I'm so very grateful. And when I was preparing for this interview, I was laughing to myself and saying, I could do two or three interviews with you. So I hope that you will consider coming back so that we can have more conversations because there's so many different directions. We we could have gone in, but I really bonded over the whole conversations about, you know, both training and cities where, you know, crime and, and drug abuse are just kind of proliferative. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you on social media, how to get access to your website. If they'd like to work with you, you're also on the East coast, which makes it easy and get access to your supplement line that you were talking about.
1: Yeah. Instagram is my main channel. So it's Y O J I M D. And uh, the mental wellness supplement line is beyond recovery.com just the way it sounds beyondrecovery.com. recovery.com. And uh, Cynthia, I really enjoyed uh, hanging out with you and your lovely audience here. You have such a calming energy. I got to tell you. It's so <laughs> so, namaste. Oh, thank be, you. I'd be honored to come back on your show. The only issue is, is that you're so popular that like this month interview was scheduled like six, seven months before for the people listening. She's like, do you want to do an interview? I said, I'd love to. All right. Well, here's, the the October, November (laughs) schedule. This was like in February or March. (laughs) God almighty, girl, you are way too popular right now. So yes, whenever you want to have me back, I'd love to.
0: Awesome. I would love that. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend.